Hello and welcome back to Twisted Ladder. My name's Jeremy and this is a podcast where I have a conversation with my friend Sam about biology. This week we're going to be rounding out the answer to that question, what gives a cell its identity, and digging into some of the implications that has for organisms as they develop. But before we do, let's uh, let's bring in Sam. Sam, how are you doing? Doing pretty well, Jeremy. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm okay. What's what's new? Is anything exciting happening in the world? I feel like we're entering the part of the Biden administration where it's oatmeal for every single meal. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> like it's not it's not pleasant, but like it's healthy. Things, uh, things could be worse. At, at least it's not an, a bowl of actual shit or something. I don't. I don't. Or, and also the question there is: Are the words oatmeal and meal in the sense of having a meal related? I don't know. And is that French or is that is one Latinate and one is Germanic? I you know these are these are the questions the, for the day. These these questions deserve their own podcast because I don't have the foggiest uh, answer to any of those. You know what's a fun thing I, I learned in <laughs> this is a massive diversion in English words for foods are tend to come from the French and words for the animal tend to come from the German. What? So like cow is Germanic but beef is uh Latinate and like uh like I don't know chicken must be fucking um must be germanic but poultry is is uh latinate um when when you learned this information did you learn why that is i i I don't think so i mean i think i want to say i don't yeah i don't know i mean obviously it must be some sort of (laughs) i don't know where i was going with that (laughs) i said obviously and then followed it with something and then and then uh you, you don't want your digression to arrive at an actual punchline. Anyway, what the fuck are we talking about today? What's uh let, how do we how 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 might a uh, a scientist explain what what it is we're getting into this time around? Uh well, as the uh the designated scientist of the podcast, I will try my best to summarize um by first talking about where we've come from, what we've already touched on in in the first episode of this this series, we talked about the basics of genomic structure. So we talked about the chemical basics of DNA, talked about what genomes are, genes, alleles. Then in episode two, we zoomed in a little bit on the basic mechanisms of gene expression captured by that fancy sounding phrase, the central dogma. That's really at the foundation of modern molecular biology. And today we're going to sort of combine those ideas and move on to the regulation of gene expression. And in particular, we'll think about how and why gene expression is regulated differently in different cell types. Okay, And by getting at that question, linking all these processes, we'll arrive at a reasonably complete answer to the original animating question for our podcast here, what really distinguishes different cell types from one another. So with that in mind, to get the conversation started today, I wanted to call back to the major thrust of episode two, the central dogma, and in particular, the first step of it. So Jeremy, do you recall in your own words, what is the first step of the central dogma? Making an RNA copy of D- of a section of DNA. Exactly, yes. And the word we use to describe that is transcription. If you recall, that's sort of akin right. to transcribing from one sort of 
format in a single language to a different format in the same language. It's still the same basic language. We're just kind of creating a copy from the, the starting point. And in this case uh, of the central dogma, we're starting off with transcribing an RNA strand from a complementary DNA template. Taking some information, keeping that information, but putting it in a different form. Exactly. Yes. And so <clears throat> even though in the past episode, uh, it may have felt like we got into some degree of detail about this process, in reality, we barely scratched the surface. This is an incredibly complicated process. There are tons of labs all around the world just studying specific aspects of the process of transcription. So there, and, and one way to think about the complexity of this process is the different uh, molecular players that are involved, most of which are proteins, uh, and including proteins that, for example, help to unzip the DNA double helix. So if you recall, we think about that, um, the, the genomic DNA in this twisted ladder, this uh, double helical structure, in order for those DNA bases to be read by transcriptional machinery, that ladder needs to be unzipped. All of those complementary bases need to be unbase paired and exposed to transcriptional machinery. You have transcriptional proteins that actually do the work of attaching individual RNA bases, these monomers, to the growing RNA strand uh, that is the polymer of an RNA molecule. Uh, there are proteins involved in proofreading this whole process to kind of flag the cell to say something went wrong with this act of transcription. We need to pause things, maybe fix an error, something like that. Uh, there are proteins that recognize certain sequences of DNA and say, yes, start tran transcribing here at this sequence of DNA. Conversely, there are proteins that recognize certain sequences of DNA and say, stop, no, do not transcribe starting from here. So why do we have to unzip the DNA first? The short answer, which is the answer to a lot of biological questions, is this is how the process has evolved. Uh, a slightly more direct answer is the way transcriptional machinery evolves. It is only able to accurately read the DNA sequence if it has been unzipped in that way. And one of those two strands is sort of interacted with by the transcriptional machinery. So, so it kind of has to unzip to get access to the information. Exactly. It's, it's really hard. It would be hard to, to read it otherwise. You could envision a system that could evolve to do that. And in fact, there is some sequence-specific recognition of not unzipped DNA, but hmm. it's, it's more complicated in many ways. Um, and bottom line, transcriptional machinery has not evolved to, to function in that way. Okay, cool. Everything that I just talked about, all of these different types of proteins and every one of those general categories of proteins, there are tons and tons of specific instances in any given genome. <clears throat> all of that basically treats the genome in that one dimension as a length of DNA, um, which is really how we've primarily considered uh, DNA and the genome in this podcast, which is totally fine. I think that's that's how we're, we'll continue thinking about it. But this is a good time to kind of reinforce something that I touched on very briefly a couple episodes ago, <clears throat> which is that those DNA molecules of the genome, those chromosomes, are all intrinsically associated with tons of other proteins. If you recall, this is chromatin structure. This is how we get that you know, two meters of DNA crammed into this microscopic nucleus, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of three-dimensional structure and organization and regulation going on to allow for uh, any individual cell's genome to actually function. But 
again, that's the bigger picture sort of 3D context for today and for this podcast for the most part. We're going to continue thinking on that sort of one-dimensional level of thinking about a DNA strand being sort of stretched out and just kind of considering that, that sequence of DNA bases. So for the level of detail that we're interested in today, suffice to say, the cell is able to exercise incredible, incredibly precise control over the level of transcription of RNA from the DNA template of individual genes. Okay, so if we imagine any individual gene that we've talked about, like hemoglobin or something like that, um, you can get anywhere from zero, no transcription, to a little, to a lot of transcription of production of RNA molecules. And thinking about the regulation of that level of transcription, um, we can broadly separate regulatory sources into internal and external cues relative to the cell. Okay, so you can imagine an internal cue being something speaking very vaguely, uh, imagine an individual muscle cell that recognizes internally it needs more proteins that are involved in, let's say, ion transport across membranes. And so within that individual cell, there will be a series of signaling steps that ultimately results in an increased rate of transcription of the genes encoding that transport protein. Okay, and contextualizing that in the central dogma, if we increase the rate of transcription of genes, we'll get more RNA molecules. There'll be more RNA molecules available to be translated into protein, and ultimately the cell will have access to more proteins that perform this particular cellular function. Process that's sort of ongoing automatically, like the cell is sort of sitting there looking for um, something to, te to, to tell it, to prompt it to start doing something and, and all this process happens in response absolutely exactly right so and then that's a that's a great sort of framing and a great way to segue to thinking about another type of cue that might affect transcription and that's an external cue so let's imagine uh some immune cell of your immune system this cell is kind of hanging out it's sort of dormant nothing's really going on and so there's certain genes in that immune cell encoding proteins that are necessary for cell division, okay? And because this immune individual immune cell is just kind of hanging around waiting for its time to shine, those proteins that promote cell division are not being actively transcribed, or maybe they're being transcribed at an extremely low level. Suddenly, the immune system of this multicellular organism detects some kind of pathogen, some type of bacteria, let's say. And through a series of complicated steps we don't need to go into right now, the immune system essentially communicates to this individual cell that we were talking about earlier that's dormant and tells that cell, you need to start multiplying right now. We need more of your type of cell to defeat this bacteria that has invaded the body. And so in that individual cell, it will get that external, externally derived cue, and it will, again, through a very complicated series of signaling steps, will activate transcription of those genes we were talking about that encode proteins necessary for cell division. Increase that rate of transcription, have more RNA encoding those proteins, have more translation of that RNA to create those proteins. Now there's more proteins floating around the cell promoting cell division, suddenly that cell is actively dividing. 
And so you get go from this dormant state to a dividing state by virtue of receiving and acting on this externally de derived cue. Your cells are capable of sense, maybe not in quite the, the, the elaborate way that we are, but they're, they're capable of looking out and of all being directed by something from your brain or something like that. They're autonomous and but making decisions of their own volition. I, I think that's an awesome observation and, and it's a great framing and I'm really glad you brought up both the idea of anthropomorphizing and the danger in anthropomorphizing. Um, I think this is a really common theme in learning biology and teaching biology. It's really tempting to anthropomorphize lots of sort of scales of complexity. There are lots of situations on, a, on the level of an individual gene, uh, an individual protein, an individual cell, where you're absolutely right. It does kind of feel like the cell knows what's going on. It's sensing its surroundings. It's making decisions. It, there, there really are ways in which it seems like the cell is sort of taking in an incredibly complicated set of information and choosing to do certain things, to take certain actions. And I think probably it's more appropriate to think of the cell's behavior as something closer to an extraordinarily complicated Rube Goldberg machine, where any individual step can be understood as a sort of simple, spontaneous, just laws of thermodynamics say this cup is going to get knocked over and it's going to spill its water out and now it's light and something's going to raise up that was formerly weighed down by the cup. You know, it's like, it's a little complicated, but you can kind of make sense of it. And it's just, that's what gravity and the laws of thermodynamics say will happen. Most individual steps in a biological system kind of boil down to the same thing. It's proteins bumping into other proteins. It's things, proteins slightly changing their shape in response to something being chopped off of them by something like any individual step is pretty spontaneous, but in aggregate, all of those sort of spontaneous actions add up to what seems like almost conscious behavior or decision-making. So now I want to take one step back and think about things at a slightly higher level. Um, what might make muscle and immune cells different? How, do, how might we think about the differences between muscle and immune cells. So, Jeremy, without any sort of reference to DNA or genes or transcription, how would you talk about the differences between, say, a muscle cell and an and an immune cell? I guess, like I would, I I'd say, a muscle cell uh, twitches and and is is tied in in place somewhere in your body, and an immune cell does something other than twitches and tends to float around or, or something of that nature. Yeah. Awesome. So I think both of the things that you talked about were kind of both functional and sort of physical attributes, maybe the shape or the way that the, the cells interact with their environment. And to some extent, the things that they do do twitching versus not twitching. Um, so 
broadly speaking, as biologists, we would talk about those things as phenotypes of those cells and the differences that you highlighted as being phenotypic differences. Okay, so physical manifestations um, and sort of both the, the, those physical manifestations and differences in uh, actions, things that the cells do. And so now connecting that to genotypic identity or the sort of underlying gene identity of those cells, I want to sort of build up a very simplified hand-wavy example and think, think about uh, a, a transport protein gene necessary uh, for that muscle cell I talked about earlier. Uh, let's call it transpo. Um, and then in this immune cell that I talked about earlier, uh, let's identify a pathogen-recognizing protein encoded by the gene recon. Okay, so we've got our ion transport gene transpo and our pathogen-recognizing gene recon. So, Jeremy, we have our two cells, our muscle cell and our immune cell. What do you think will be the transcriptional status of these two different genes in the muscle cell that we're talking about? The transpo would be on and... Was it, what was it, RECO would be off? Exactly, yeah, because the muscle cell needs to transport ions in order to do that twitching that you talked about, and the muscle cell is not responsible for recognizing pathogens, so it doesn't need the recon protein. And because of that difference in phenotypic identity, phenotypic need, behavioral need for these different cells, that connects back to the transcriptional status of the genes that encode those functional proteins. So exactly as you said, in this muscle cell, the transpo gene is probably generally transcribed pretty highly, and the recon gene is probably transcribed not at all or at a very low level. And then considering that immune cell, just the opposite would be true. That immune cell doesn't need to contract, so it doesn't need to transport ions in the same way that a muscle cell would. Therefore, it would not need the transpo protein and therefore it would not need to transcribe the transpo gene. So it's almost like there's there's all these features and they're all sort of available to the cell, but the cell decides we'll flip these ones on and we'll turn or leave these ones off because we need these and, and these would just they would bog things down if we had them on as well. Absolutely. The cell is deciding or it's sort of has the appearance of deciding because of the complex combination of cues that it has gotten to impose a particular transcriptional profile. So extrapolate from this simplified example with these two hypothetical cell types and these two hypothetical genes to all of the 20,000 plus genes in the human genome. And a quick note, the exact number is a little hard to pin down depending on the exact definition you're using for a gene. Don't need to get into that right now. But basically, all of these trillions of cells in every single individual cell in your body, the transcriptional profile of those 20,000 genes is precisely controlled. There's an enormous amount of energy expended by every one of those cells to regulate whether each of those genes is transcribed, turned off, or somewhere in between. And it is that combination, that precise transcriptional profile in every individual cell that facilitates the expression of the correct pattern of proteins, and it's that pattern of proteins altogether that confers a particular phenotype, that physical manifestation on the cell. And that is ultimately what really gives the cell its unique cellular identity. One thing that comes to mind is it, is it seems like 
the cell is trucking around this, what was it, two meters of DNA? Yeah. Um, and sort of selecting from it, I'm assuming the, the a, a rather small fraction for an individual cell type that that makes up what it is. Um, mm-hmm. That seems like a, a difficult way of going about things. Um, I mean, if if I were a cell uh, with a human brain, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. would just probably um, get rid of all this unnecessary DNA that I have no use for and would seem to make the process of transcription much more difficult for me. Like, you know, if I have to, you know, sort through this huge, huge library of Congress sized thing, every time I want to, you know, uh, read one book, I would, I would just, I would just get rid of, get rid of the rest of the library and hang on to the books I need. Totally. It's a great, great question. Um, I don't know if I've provided this sassy answer enough times. What is usually my answer for, uh, (laughs) Why? Why questions? Um, I suppose it, it boils down to that. Just w- evolution just hasn't walked down that path. Yeah, I, I think that that's the short. That's the the real answer to most of these questions is evolution says so. This is the solution that evolution has come up with for for terrestrial life. Um, digging into the the meat of the question a little bit more, um, I think it's a it's an awesome question. And in fact, I think you probably could sort of design or engineer a novel multicellular organism that does what you talk about, that once a individual cell fully commits down uh, a particular lineage, decides, yes, I am now a muscle cell, and that's never going to change. Let's get rid of, that, of all this non-muscle cell crap that I don't care about anymore. I think on paper, that's a feasible solution to this problem of, of a multicellular organism. Absolutely. Um, I think in terms of why that did not evolve, there's a few different ways to think about it. Um, one way to think about it is it seems sort of costly to have and store and compact and keep transcriptionally off all this DNA, this huge portion of the genome that is not relevant to the cellular cellular identity of this particular cell type. The sort of corollary of that is if you did have a system, whether engineered or evolved, that adopted the sort of approach to transcriptional regulation that you're talking about, you would need to have an enormously complicated and significant regulatory apparatus to affect what you're describing, right? You would need to have mechanisms to monitor the cellular identity of the cell that would need to go through the process of physically chopping out the parts of the genome that are no longer needed, stitch things back together. So let's say there's a 2 million base pair sequence of chromosome 7 that is not needed in a muscle cell. So it's just right in the middle of one part of the chromosome. So you need to chop, make little cuts in either end of that 2 million base pair sequence. You need to bring one end of the chopped out section back together with the other end of the chopped out section. You need to stitch it back together properly. You need to get rid of that chopped out section of DNA. Um, it's complicated, right? And it's conceivable. Everything that does that happens in real cells is also complicated, so I'm not saying it's impossible just because it's complicated, but it is a non-trivial regulatory molecular problem 
for evolution or an engineer to solve. Uh, it's not just sort of as simple as getting rid of what we no longer need. It's like asking the question, why didn't the Wright brothers build a rocket and go to the moon? Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe they would have if they could have, but the tools and machinery to do that weren't available to them. And so they did what they could. Anthropomorphization, blah, blah, blah aside, you take the pathways that are available to you and, and doing that while ben maybe beneficial, it's just the machinery isn't there for the, for the cell or the body to evolve uh, to, to go down that pathway as, as much as it might be pressured to go that way. Mm -hmm. You still can't go that direction unless you have the means. Totally. Yeah. And I think just to kind of pull this thread just a tiny bit more, I really do think it's a fascinating question and it's a, and it's a really interesting approach to, uh, to solving this biological problem. I think it's conceivable in like a hundred years, but like you can imagine designing an experiment to test this. You could sort of design really simple multicellular organisms that have engineered both solutions to development. You could have a multicellular organism with like 20 cell types, one that's engineered in our conventional, you know, method of transcriptional regulation, and the other that's engineered to chop out extraneous uh, DNA once a cell type has specified itself. And you could compete them against each other and see who wins. Maybe there's some fitness advantage in some specific circumstances to one versus the other. I suspect, I would hypothesize that the system that you described of chopping out extraneous DNA, there are really significant sort of mutational risks of the inevitable misregulation of that type of machinery that would be responsible for enacting that that approach to this particular biological problem. That's, that's the, the same reason we we drive to work instead of flinging ourselves there in catapults like <laughs> <laughs> If it works perfectly you get there really fast from the cap catapult. Yeah, and if it yeah. if it works it's great like if you nail the landing every time cat like pose, you know, three points but Against all odds, I, I, ha I have to concede that's a great analogy, and I think it applies here. So that discussion, I think, is a pretty good segue to the final sort of piece of this conversation I want to have today, which is thinking about this idea of cell type specific transcriptional profiles in the context of development. Okay, And by development, um, I really mean the sort of... Uh, creation of a multicellular organism from a single cell starting point, okay? And that sort of single cell starting point is the product of fertilization, a single sperm fertilizing a single egg. And if we call back briefly to episode one, when we were thinking about genomic structure, most human cells have 46 chromosomes, these individual discrete strands of DNA. The notable exception to that number 46 are the sex cells, or gametes, each of which are haploid, meaning they have half the genetic material of those normal, quote-unquote, body cells. So each sex cell, either a sperm or an egg cell, has 23 chromosomes, again, half that normal genetic material. So that act of fertilization in humans is when two haploid sex cells merge, that haploid sperm and that haploid egg, forming a single cell now with double the genetic material of those starting cells. This is now a diploid cell, which gets the name zygote, 
and it now has 46 chromosomes, 23 of which came from the mother and 23 of which came from the father of that zygote. And this is the moment of that, that moment of fertilization, creating a zygote from a sperm cell and, a, and an egg cell, that a genotypically unique entity is created. And that genotypically unique entity has a unique combination of genetic material compiled from a subset of the mother's genes and a subset of the father's genes. From this point on in development, assuming everything goes smoothly, every cell in the developing organism's body is genetically identical to this zygote, okay? And thinking about the life of the zygote and what the zygote is meant to be doing, Jeremy, what is the next thing a zygote needs to do? Um, it, uh, I mean, it's, I feel like it's got to divide, right? Exactly. It needs to divide. So we have a single-celled zygote. It goes through a single round of cell division, and now we have two genetically identical cells. Then each of those genetically identical cells divides itself. Now we have four cells, four genetically identical cells. Each of those four cells divides. Now we have eight genetically identical cells. Depending on the organism, we're probably starting to see the first stages of what I talked about earlier, which is cell type specific transcriptional profiles. All eight cells that we have so far are going to continue dividing, but not all the descendants of those cells will be totally identical in terms of their transcriptional profiles. Again, every one of the cells will remain genotypically identical. The sequence of their genomes will be identical. So let's just, again, being really sort of oversimplifying and hand-wavy, one of those eight cells will go on to form a lineage that produces all the skin cell types of the organism. And another one of those eight cells will go on to produce the lineage of internal organ organs. And another will go on to produce a lineage of blood cells and so on. Okay, so I guess like the, the question that comes to my mind is like you start off with this this diploid cell, the, the fertilized egg, essentially. The way I'm picturing this, that cell splits into two, and then each of those split into two. Um, and if the process, if that process continues on, then you'll just end up with a big mess of these same identical cells. Like, how does how is it that one cell is capable of splitting into two different cells that are different from it? That seems totally strange process. Yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great question and it's a really important question. Um, the first thing I want to emphasize is you know as you pointed out, there should be an element of identity of of identicalness between the original cell and then the two daughter cells that are produced by cell division. We want the genomes, the underlying DNA in those genomes to be identical in both daughter cells compared to the, the mother cell that gave rise to those daughter cells. So that is what needs to happen. But you also need to start to get a diversity of transcriptional profiles in these different organisms, the descendants of these mm. organisms in this developing embryo. Okay, so that's a really key conceptual distinction to make there. Um, but to sort of highlight you know, your, your question and to start to answer it, there's lots of complicated mechanisms by which these increasingly diverged uh, transcriptional profiles arise in the cells of the developing organism. I'm going to pick one example that I'm going to, as usual, really significantly simplify um, and, and probably miss a few of the, the, the really specific details, but the, the overall picture I think is, is accurate and instructive. 
The short answer is there's a little bit of randomness built into it, okay? The, the signaling pathway that I'm going to be talking about is known as the notch signaling pathway. The notch protein is uh, essentially an extracellular protein, so it actually has a portion of its length that is embedded in the outer cell membrane of uh, the cell. There's a portion of the notch protein that extends beyond that membrane and a portion that, that extends inside the cell membrane it's like a little feeler that's sticking out of the cell sure yeah let's call it a little feeler <laughs> but <laughs> that's it's what, uh it's, that's what they called me back in the day <laughs> i don't remember that actually but uh i'm gonna start yeah calling no, that was you. my nickname in the other high school i oh, went to oh your secret family uh yeah okay <laughs> that so. i started in middle school <laughs> Okay, so we have our notch little feeler <laughs> protein, and it is basically going to be presented on the cell surface of a lot of these cells, all of these cells in this developing organism, okay? And let's say cell number three and cell number four are both expressing notch protein on their cell surfaces. They're right next to each other. And there's a little bit of randomness that happens. And essentially, for fundamentally random reasons, one of those two cells starts to get a little bit more notch protein on its surface than the other. And without going into the molecular details here, that difference in notch protein, which started off kind of random, gets exaggerated over time. And essentially, that creates a polarity in the communication between those cells. Mm. And ultimately, what happens is it could have gone the other way. Cell three could have gotten l more notch protein than cell, cell four or vice versa. But in this particular embryo, what we have flagged as cell four accumulated more notch protein on its surface, and that causes this polar signal to be transmitted from cell three to cell four. Hmm. And what's going to start happening is cell four, where more of the notch protein accumulated, that sort of interaction of the extracellular portion of the notch protein with the signal sending cell is going to cause some changes in the signal receiving cell such that the intracellular domain of the notch protein is going to break off. It's going to migrate away from the cell membrane of the cell into the nucleus, which is where the genome oh, is. Huh. There, that intracellular domain of the notch protein is going to act as a transcription factor, hmm. it is going to physically associate with individual genes in the genome and activate their transcription. Huh. That process is not going to happen in the other cell that gave that cell signal. The combination of genes that are activated by that notch intracellular domain are going to be expressed into proteins, and that combination of proteins is going to start to confer a slightly different cellular identity in cell four than cell three. That's going to huh. start to, along with a whole host of other comparable sort of uh, changes in transcription and therefore translation and therefore proteins, is going to influence where cell four and its descent cellular descendants position themselves in the steadily growing embryo. And then there's going to be more and additional sort of cell-cell uh, signaling cues, and you're going to get this progressive sort of differentiation of transcriptional profiles. And that's really 
where I want things to come back. So to. it's, I mean, it's almost like if, um, if a, a bunch of people were building a house, it's, it almost sounds like you, you flip a coin and whoever gets heads or whatever builds the foundation, uh, flip a coin somewhere else in the process. And that decides who's framing the house, flip a coin somewhere else that describes who, who's doing the landscaping, plumbing, yada, yada, yada. I think that's a great analogy. And I, and just to sort of run with that a little bit more after that coin flip is you had, you had two workers, both of whom were equally equipped to <clears throat> assemble the roof and install the plumbing. Let's assume these are very, uh, expert, uh, they're, they're, they're jacks of all who, trades. They're jacks of all trades. They're equally equipped to do both. As soon as that coin is flipped, those two equally qualified workers differentiate their focus. Mm. Okay, and that's going to change their behavior moving forward. The guy who's in charge of plumbing is going to gather his tools that he needs to assemble the plumbing of the home, and the worker who was put in charge of roofing is going to gather those tools and is going to encounter different challenges. They're going to be in different parts of the house. They're going to spend their time differently, okay? So you started off with these fundamentally identical workers or cells, a little bit of randomness happens, and suddenly you have this differentiation, this specialization of identity and behavior. And so to sort of bring this back to our our eight-cell embryo, already at this eight-cell stage, we have these slightly different combinations of genes being turned on, being turned off in each of those eight cells. And that's going to continue happening as those eight cells become 16, becomes 32, becomes 64, and it's going to keep dividing, and the development is going to keep happening until you arrive at the approximately 30 trillion cells of an adult human, where every cell, again, assuming everything went smoothly, has the identical genome, the exact same 46 chromosomes with the exact same approximately 20,000 genes and the associated alleles that came in that were created at the moment of the creation of that single-celled zygote that resulted uh, from fertilization. Because of the precise combination of genes that are turned on versus turned off, the transcriptional profile of those genes, that's what you get this cellular identity, where you get muscle cells and immune cells and liver cells and eye cells all behaving differently, despite having the exact same genome. And that's where we're gonna leave off for today. Hopefully by now you have a good idea of how these differences in gene expression give rise to cellular identity. Next time, and to round out this arc, we're going to be talking about what happens when this whole process goes wrong. Thanks for listening.